You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. Well, amen. Amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the last in the series, Damaged Daughters. They sound like they're really good and rowdy this morning. (laughs) Amen. This is the last in the series, Damaged Daughters, and I titled this message, Every Girl Needs Goading. Okay, and I'll explain that term in a minute. And like I said, this is not just simply in raising girls, because every boy needs goading too. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. But in Esther chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadathath, the Agagite, elevating him, giving him a seat of honor higher, higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down, paid honor to Haman, for the king commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor. Now, everybody, real quickly, this is an order of the king. So Mordecai's not defying Haman. He's defying who? He's defying the king. Verse 3, then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, in the, in the month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people who do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the man who can carry out this business." So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman. Do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors, to the various provinces and nobles of the various people. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, 
kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to every people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out. The edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict or the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatzak, one of kings, the eunuchs, assigned to a tender and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in New Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Let's stop there. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you glory. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Let me begin with a question. This is a critical question. And uh, there are a lot that are not here today. I understand Memorial Day weekend, people traveling. Uh, people may be watching some of our people on live stream. This is a critical question. And I want to ask you this. Do your children know why you come here? Okay. Do your children know why you come here? Now, I'm, I'm not talking about why you come to church, why you come to this particular church. For example, let me give you an example. If, you, if you're driving 30 miles, I mean, you're driving 30 minutes one way to come to this church, and you're passing churches with far more better facilities, more extensive programs, age-graded activities, and all kinds of incentives to get you to come to that church. Why are you coming here? And have you ever told your children why you come here? Uh, Sheila and I years ago were invited to a church. I was speaking. It was a, a First Baptist Church in a county seat town in a, in a um, university uh, town, and uh, they were trying to get me to come to that church. And when I walked into that foyer, they had a coffee heaven. 
I mean, they had espresso, cappuccino, brave. They had everything. They had cold drinks, hot drinks. They had every kind of, every kind of morning delicacy you might look for. And then they said, you know, they, they, they brought me down to the preschool department. And parents, um, you, uh, you know, when you walked in with your, with your toddler, your children, you put them, Caleb, you put them on a slide, and they slid down into the preschool department as if that would get them kind of excited. It was an unbelievable church. Let me ask you something. Why do you come here? And do your children know why you come here? Let me give you another example. There's a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of talk going on in social media right now about Target, uh, about the department store Target, one of the largest, second only to Walmart. Um, people are talking about boycotting. We've watched uh, just as Budweiser has uh, all of a sudden lost a tremendous amount of revenue, billions in a matter of a single day. And now we're seeing Target get hit. And, and they've lost billions, I think seven or eight billion dollars. It's just an unbelievable amount of money. And People in the Christian community and the conservative, among conservatives, are upset with Target and talking about boycotting it. But I thought to myself, does any parent bother to tell their children why? Would we go into Target, point out a t-shirt, one of them that reads, getting in bed with the devil? The LGBTQ movement that has taken over an entire department of, of, of wear, uh, clothing, lines in, in Target. Would we walk into Target, take our children and say, this t-shirt here, holding it up, this t-shirt says getting in bed with the devil. And this is one of the reasons that we will not be coming to this store anymore. Could you imagine a Christian parent taking their children in, walking them through why their biblical worldview, how we see the Scripture, does not allow them to continue to support a business, a corporation that is doing something that we believe is undermining the principles by which we're raising our children? You see, I'm afraid that a lot of times we come to church, but we never bother to tell our kids why. Why, why. why can't we go there? They have a golf cart that picks us up. There's churches in this area that have bowling alleys. There are churches in this area that have all kinds of gizmos and gadgets and things to attract you and get you to come here. Why do you come here? And do your children know why? We live in a racially very divided nation right now. Uh, my kids know why they come here. They've known that from the moment I accepted the call to come here. Because I believe that God had something to say about race relations. And I believe that Martin Luther King Jr., when he said the most segregated hour in America is the 11 to 12 o'clock hour on a Sunday. Uh, that made me think, you know, we don't look much like heaven. So I'd like to go to a church that kind of looks like heaven. And so uh, we were committed, Sheila and I, we began to tell our children the reason um, I can't go to this First Baptist Church or I can't go there because God has not called me there. And even my 
not just my theology, but my ministerial ideology, if we could call it that, would clash with this church. Why do we come here? Why a white person? Why do you come here? A black man or woman, why do you come here? Are you coming here because you believe that this church stands for something that this city and this world needs to see? I do. I mean, I do. You see, uh, often what happens is we don't walk our children. Let me give you an example. This is a very controversial example, but you're going to have to listen to me. Let's say that two candidates were running for president of the United States in 2024. One candidate I would never vote for because I don't agree with their ideology. The other candidate I would very much vote for among any other candidate right now. And those two people are Michelle Obama and Condoleezza Rice. Michelle Obama, Condoleezza Rice are both African-American women. They're both extremely capable women. But one has a strong biblical conservative and let me say when I say conservative I'm not talking about Republican I'm not talking about partisan politics I'm talking about a conservative view of government and what government is intended to be but one candidate has a strong biblical view of many of the mainline issues Condoleezza Rice was the first female African-American Secretary of State did you know that she was the first woman to serve as the National Security Advisor. At the time of her appointment as Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice was the highest-ranking woman in the history of the United States to be in line for the President of the United States. She now serves as the director of the Hoover, Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Hoover Institute on war, revolution, and peace is an American public policy think tank and a research institution that promotes personal and economic liberty, free enterprise, and limited government. Many of you may not be aware of it, but Condoleezza Rice, who was a Democrat and a member of the Democratic Party in 1982, made the switch to the Republican Party because she believed that the political ideologies were moving in the wrong direction. They were clashing with her biblical worldview. Oh, by the way, Condoleezza Rice, like Martin Luther King Jr., was the child of a preacher. Michelle Obama, in every way, is a brilliant woman. Princeton University, Harvard Law, very capable, but, but again, her political ideology runs contrary to what I believe as a Christian in the area of the unborn, abortion, same-sex marriage, LGBTQ, the present trans movement, and legislation that I believe victimizes young girls and even target. We would disagree. You see, if I were walking my children through two African-American women, both gifted and qualified, who were running for the President of the United States, then I would simply walk them through why I would vote for one over the other, and it would be strictly, listen, not on anything other than my biblical worldview. This is my final authority.
um, it determines how I vote. It has nothing to do with color. In fact, I can tell you right now that I don't believe the Republican Party has a single candidate that I would choose over Condoleezza Rice. I think she's a very effective individual. She's African-American, but brilliant as well. Two women, though they have the same ethnicity, are polar opposites on many of the core issues. Now, let me ask you this. If those two women were running for office, who would Hollywood, the entertainment industry, the sports industry, the music industry, who do you think they would choose based on their ideology? And you see, this is where we've got to begin to walk our children through a biblical worldview and why we believe in one candidate over another and why we if we boycott Target, why we would boycott Target? You see, this political ideology, and hey, you may not agree, it doesn't matter. We judge people based on the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Now, let's read on. Looking at, back at Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. He said no. Queen Vashti, you remember? In chapter 1 of Esther, she said no right? She said no. And you know, we said this last week, teach your daughters, teach your children how to say no. You know, sometimes raising girls, girls need to learn that. You know, teaching children, but teaching daughters especially, because sometimes they can be intimidated by a male-dominated world. Teaching them how to hold themselves up, head held high, shoulders back, and sometimes to look at somebody and, and bring up all the authority that they can and say, no, I won't do that. I don't agree with that. Vashti did that. You know, that's important. And also maybe alluded to this is not just a matter of saying no, it's a matter of teaching your children to stand alone. No doubt, Esther was alone, isolated. You know, she even brings up the fact that it's been a month since, since she's been summoned by the king, King Xerxes. She hadn't even seen him in a month. She was away from all her Jewish family and friends. In fact, she couldn't disclose the fact that she was a Jew. But teach your daughters not only how to say no, but how to stand alone. I don't mind standing alone. I don't mind at all when people get up and walk out of here. My affirmation approval is not based on whether you sit here or whether you leave. It's based on what I know the Bible to teach and what is morally and ethically right. Teach your daughters to stand alone. And let me say this, and I wrote this down, you do not need a man to be a woman. You know, isn't that true? You know, you don't need a boyfriend to get through school. In fact, you're better off not getting a boyfriend. 
You're better off to stay literally free until you get at least into college where you can begin to discern what God's will and direction for your life is. Learn to stand alone and learn you can, you're comfortable being alone. You know, daughters need to hear that. You don't need a boyfriend. You don't need a man. You don't need anybody. Hey, Dad, if you're affirming your daughter, that's good enough. And if you don't have a dad, you may say, well, I don't have a dad. Look, there's a godly men all around you that will affirm you as you're growing up. But now let's get to the sermon. Let's get to what we said at the beginning. Every girl needs guidance, but every girl needs goading. Take a, take a right. Hold your finger back at Esther, but take a right and go over to Acts chapter 26. Now I, want you, I want you to see this. Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 26, the, the apostle Paul is sharing his testimony with King Agrippa. And he tells, and it's also in Acts chapter 9, but in Acts chapter 26, Paul is sharing his testimony with King Agrippa. And when he comes to verse 14, he talks about, he said, listen, I was on, my, on the Damascus road. I was on my way to Damascus to persecute the church when all of a sudden, verse 14, I fell to the ground and I heard a voice. It's the voice of Jesus Christ saying in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against what? Against what? Against the goads. Against the goad. Well, what is a goad? A goad was a tool back in those days on the back of a plow. And when a farmer would be plowing, the ox would often begin to slow down, and a lot of times the ox would stop. And no amount of giddy up or go or shouting made no difference at all. What a farmer did, he had a goad, a sharp, piercing instrument on the back of the plow, and he would goad he would take that and hit the back end the rear of that oxen to get him to move Jesus said to the apostle Paul he said Paul why are you persecuting me it is hard to kick against the goad which was simply this Paul understood it Kicking the goat, what you would see a lot of times with an ox, their legs, their lower extremities would be all scarred up, bleeding, because the ox, when you poke the ox, the ox would kick the goat, and it would only rip and tear their skin. Paul, Jesus was saying to Paul, Paul, you are only hurting yourself. You're kicking against the goat. But I thought about that because, you know, sometimes children need goading. You know, we're not comfortable with that anymore. Hey, we'll allow our kids to be bullied on social media, but God forbid that a parent tries to encourage their children to be everything that God intended them to be. You know, children sometimes, especially daughters, sometimes they need a little push, uh, a, a, a little shove. You're like a coach. You're raising your children and you see gifts and talents and, a, and abilities in them and, 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 and you kind of have to get behind them and, and encourage them to, to, to be everything that God would intend them to be. I wrote down here, Satan has crippled a lot of our young people with a sedentary lifestyle. Technology today holds a lot of young people prisoners. They're either watching TV or on their phone.
the reality is, is that Satan would have your child never discover and know God's will for their life. That's what he wants. He wants them to waste their life because he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus comes to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. You know, sometimes I, I'm amazed at how young people just settle for anything. I just got to give me a boyfriend. I just got to find somebody to fall in love with. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, you got a, four, you got a, you got a city. Most university is like a city. They're massive. So you got, there's plenty of boys and girls that date at some point in your life. But what's more critical right now is discerning and discovering and knowing God's will, God's purpose, God's plan for your life. And there's a whole world out there with all kinds of adventures. Young people today can go spend the summer in Paris and, or London or they can travel the world. There's so much that they can do. There's so much that God wants them to see. But I just got to get me somebody to spend the rest of my life with. Tenth grade? You see, Esther needed goading. Kids need goading. Because there's an enormous amount of potential and ability in them, but they need somebody to encourage them. And so I, I, I just simply said, why did Esther, or for that matter, why did children need goading? Number one, sometimes they do not believe in themselves. If you read Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, Esther did not believe in herself. I think Esther had a low self-image. In fact, in Esther chapter 2, verse 8, in Esther chapter 2, verse 8, it's Mordecai saying to Esther, Esther, you are a beautiful young lady. Uh, you have so much giftedness just in how you carry yourself and your looks, your looks, your stature, everything God has given you, and God wants to use it for His glory. I don't think Esther thought that at all. I think in Esther chapter 2, verse 7, when it says she had a lovely figure and was beautiful, you know what I think Esther thought? She thought, no, I don't. You ever notice how people with bulimia, anorexia, do you ever notice how they're skinny, they're frail, they're sometimes skeletal? We look at Marcia Carpenter who died. You remember she had it when she was anorexic? Do you know how the, you know how many of these young ladies see themselves? They see themselves as overweight. They're the opposite of what they see. They have a poor self-image. Their brain has convinced them of something that is not true. And listen, parent, that's what your enemy will do. Your enemy will convince your child that's growing and developing with gifts and abilities and purpose and God has a plan. Your enemy sets out to say no. You say to your child, you know, you're gifted, you're smart, you're brilliant, you got a sharp mind. The enemy goes, no, you don't. You're dumb, stupid. You look at your child and you say, you know, you're a beautiful young lady. God has his hand on you and God's going to use you. No, you don't. You're ugly. And social media is bombarding them today and, and commercialism and Hollywood and music and all that liberal element out there. Who do you think's creating this culture? But we see Mordecai. Esther, God has given you this beauty. 
God has given you this loveliness. And I don't think it was just literally physically because every young lady, listen, a man does not just fall in love because of her beauty. There's a word, a four-letter word. If I could teach young women, I would teach them. It's the most attractive thing that a woman has. It's the word being kind. Merciful. That's a quality. That when a woman expresses that, it's almost more than a man can, can handle. Because it's, a, it's an internal beauty. But I don't think she thought that. I don't think she believed in herself. I believe she said, you know, there's a lot of gifted, talented young ladies in this, in this pageantry to be the queen. I'm just a little Jew slave girl. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. But Mordecai said, no, you're not. God has, your hand, God has his hand on you for greatness. Many girls, though gifted and talented and even beautiful, have a very, very low self-image. I wrote these words down. The failure of parents in the formative years to encourage, affirm, to compliment, to say something positive. Instead, a child feels that they never are good enough. They never measure up. There's always room for a parent, and a parent never quite gives them the okay. They live their life constantly trying to perform, to do better. You make a B, well, why didn't you make an A? You're batting 400, why not 500? And they never measure up. Or their parents are addicted to drugs, alcohol, gaming, or something that keeps their mental illness. I think when Mordecai was looking at her and saying to her, look at, look at chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. In verse 10 and, 10 and 11, in verse 10 and 11, and I've got to find it, verse 10, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death. The only exception is if the king extends the gold scepter to him and spares his life, but for 30 days, 30 days have passed and I have not been called by the king. You know what I wrote down? I think she said what she was saying to Mordecai when Mordecai looked at her and said, you've been brought to this position, to this moment, to stand on behalf of your people. I think in that moment she was saying, I am out of my element. You don't understand, Mordecai. I told you I couldn't make it in this world. He hasn't summoned me in 30 days. I told you I couldn't be attractive enough to hang on to him. And if I go now, I'm as good as dead. She didn't believe in herself. And every child needs goading, parent. You're the one that sees the value, the worth, the purpose, the plan. Train up a child in the way and the bent. And God has bent every one of your children. And they're uniquely different, uniquely gifted, going in a multiplicity of different directions. And sometimes, Dad, they don't need you. Mom, they don't need you to say, uh, you know, do this, or you're, you're doing pretty good. Well, you did fair. Well, these are pretty good grades. 
You need to look at them. Sometimes even when they're small, you need to look at them and say, you know, I'm so proud of you. And God is already showing you what gift, how gifted you are. One, why do they need goading? Sometimes they don't believe in themselves. Number two, sometimes children need to be reminded of a higher calling, a higher purpose. In the 1970s, not long after the death of Dr. King and not long after the Civil Rights Movement, Alex Haley came up with his book, Roots. It was a mini-series. I remember it. I can, I can see myself as a teenage kid sitting on the floor in the living room watching this mini-series called Roots. It's a man by the name of Kunta Kinte. Kunta Kinte. But I'll never forget the moment when Kunta Kinte, this one person that had been ripped out of his homeland, out of Africa, had been put on a slave ship and carried against his will, carried contrary to everything that he wanted, taken out of his homeland and planted in the North America, planted in the United States. I remember there is a scene when his little girl is born. Her name, he calls her Kizzy. And he holds her up on a beautiful starlit night and Kunta Kente, this African warrior, holds his daughter up and dedicates her for the purpose and the plan that his creator had for Kizzy. And that it's tracing this line as it moves and overcomes the obstacles of slavery and all of the ills and the heartache to be a great people. Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. The messianic line is hanging in the balance. The genealogy of Jesus. Jesus is, uh, Haman wishes to exterminate the Jewish people. But look what Mordecai says. Mordecai says to her, um, in my mind is trying to find the case here, in verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, what she says is tell Mordecai, hey, listen, if I go before the king, he hadn't called me in 30 days, so undoubtedly he's then turned off to me. I don't have what it takes, and I tried to tell you that. When you put me in this position, I'm going to end up just like Vashti. I'm going to be banished. So you go back and tell him, and besides all that, if I go before him unsummoned, and he doesn't hold the scepter, his his authority, if he doesn't hold that out to me, I'm dead. Watch what he says to her. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mount Mordecai, he sent back these, this answer. Well, just go home and, and uh, suck it up and play your video games and realize that some things just don't work out for people. This is a hard, cruel world and poor little you, come here, little baby. No. I need goading. Watch what he says. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Oh, and here it is. Dog ear this page. 
And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And I wrote these things down. First, you can spend your life steering clear of conflict, avoiding any confrontation, living your life remaining neutral. You can raise your children that way. You know, Adrian Rogers is right. If you don't stand for anything, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Hey, listen, parent. If you don't stand for something, your children will fall for anything. Some of us think, and I wrote this down, you, you, you think you can maintain neutrality. You're like the man in the Civil War. He wore a, a blue shirt and gray trousers. And he got shot at from both sides. You can't think, well, I, I, I got to watch out for my own skin. But... Just because you have somewhat of a position of power and influence, as writer said, you've been given this uh, not to isolate and to insulate you. See, that's what Mordecai was saying. You've not been put in this position. You've not given this honor, this opportunity for you to squander it and think that you can hide away, insulate it from the problem, and isolating yourself. You can't do that. Esther, you're going to have to, you're gonna have to take a stand. First, you can't spend your life steering clear of conflict. Teach your children that conflict will come in their life because they're going to constantly be standing for their faith. And every time they do, they can get ready because some people will not like it and will leave. Or they will ostracize you or alienate you. But secondly, God will win. That's what Mordecai said. You know what Mordecai said? He said, God's going to win this. He's going to defeat Haman. This is going to turn out for our good, Esther. God will triumph. Good will triumph. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but grind exceedingly fine. Dr. King said again, he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, Tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. What he was saying is, Esther, you can't hide out. You can't insulate yourself. You can't isolate yourself. Esther, you have to realize it's time for you to take a stand. Bishop Desmond Tutu said this, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Benjamin Franklin said justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Mordecai could have said to Esther, where is your outrage? Why aren't you clothed in sackcloth and ashes. Thirdly, he reminds Esther, you've got a God-given purpose. Your life has come down to this moment. Who's to say that God has not called you but for this moment? Teach your children that it may come down to a single moment in time, a single moment in their life. And in that moment, what? listen, what they choose will define them for the rest of their life.
We had a mom who said yesterday, she said, if, I, if, if, if we had listened, if we had listened to those voices in your church that were telling us what to do, but we did not listen, my daughter did not listen, and we're in the middle of hell. Mordecai said, God has a purpose and a plan, and who's to say that you've not come to this moment at this time for this? I remember a time, and I'm not, I'm not going to belabor it, but I'll close with this in a moment. But on the racial issue, it came down to a point in, in, in Natchez where Sheila and I were under tremendous fire. My daughter, who now does pediatric dentistry in Natchez, went to visit one of our deacons and his wife. And when she went, he said, would you like to go see the old church where your dad pastored? Yes. She went into that church. She cried. She said, Dad, it was horrible. Toys were still stacked and left. The preschool looked as if people had walked away out of Sunday school rooms, out of rooms, over and over again. She said, Dad, it was just horrible. And then the deacon looked at her and said, you have no idea the threats that your dad was under. They were trying to kill your dad for his stand on race relations. And Amy, they were probably trying to kill your entire family. I remember that one moment. I can still see me. I walked to church to the deacons meeting. There was a full slate of deacons there. And they begin to tell me why this black man couldn't come to this church, why he couldn't share his testimony, why he couldn't sing. They didn't care that God had already used him on 60 Minutes. He had been on the Oprah Winfrey show. He had reached a certain level of notoriety, but his testimony was about Jesus Christ. They said, you can't. You call him and tell him not to come. And they were saying it like this. You call him blankety-blank, tell him not to come, and you take your blankety-blank resume, and you get, you circulate it, you get out of here. Sheila had people calling her on the phone, saying, pack your stuff and get out. My kids were going to school. Some of them were being made fun of. Teachers were rude and disrespectful to them. I was known as the in-lover. Living in pure hell, I still see me walking that day, walking to that deacon's meeting. I literally was running a fever. My body was hot. My nerves were so inflamed. I walked into a pit in the pit of hell. And at a certain point, my staff member, one of my staff members, my key figure, looked and said to these men that were just a bunch of bullies, Sick, and I talked to Brother Jeff for a minute. We went out of that room, we went somewhere, and he began to break down and cry. And he said, Brother Jeff, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, call Sheldon Gooch and tell him not to come. Tell him maybe later. Maybe there'll be a better time. And I looked at him and I said, Buddy, there'll never be a better time. And I'll never forget the words. I said, if I bow at this moment... I'll spend the rest of my life bowing to whatever bully comes along. I can't. And he wept uncontrollably. He walked back in there like a, he was literally almost lifeless and afraid. They had frightened him. And I walked back in there, and they thought I was going to back down. And I said, men, I cannot back down. I said, Sheldon is coming. 
and we're going ahead with the service. And they tried to vote me out of the church and they lost 62% to 38%. My life came down to that moment. An eight pound, four ounce baby born on a Sunday afternoon, a Sunday evening in Niagara Falls, New York. My first breath, my life came down to that moment. What I did in that moment defined the rest of my life. And teach your children, especially your daughters, that sometimes that all you can do is say no. It's to say no. But everybody listen. Amy, my oldest, who practices pedi pediatric dentistry there in Natchez, said, Dad, I've never been in a place where I'm treated so nice by African-American. You know what that church was called? It was called the church that hated black people. Their last service is today. And guess who's going? Amy. <sighs> Sam, Judah, Eden, Canaan, Issachate, Elam, and Parker Rose. She's going with her children, five biological children, three children, two Asian, one African. And I worry for my African granddaughter and the reception that she will feel. But my daughter will be there today. And Emily... And Corey and Emma Grace and Sophie have gone as well to the last service of this church. Sometimes teach your children that if you don't stand up, when it may be very difficult to do, when you don't begin to teach your children at a very young age, God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Emily, I looked at Sadie a moment ago. There's Brennan sitting in Eric's lap in our praise and worship as we come together to pray. I do not know what God will do with these little girls. Grayson was sitting in there. I don't know what God would do with them. Benjamin came in. Deidre came in and said, do you have a breakfast bar? Yeah, here's a breakfast bar. I said, I'm going to stay on the good side just in case he's my cardiologist one day. We don't know. But parent, what you're doing is you're saying, God, I want to know your will, your direction, your plan, and you're communicating that to your children. God's purpose, God's plan, God's will, and you're also teaching them to stand up. And they may be the Rosa Park one day, that African-American woman in the middle of that Montgomery bus boycott that one African-American woman whose, whose legacy lives to this day in the civil rights movement when they said, you cannot sit here. And she, with full stature and authority, said no. Let's stand. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what God may be doing in your life. I know it's a Memorial Day weekend and 
You know, we celebrate in a country where a lot of people have bled and died for this country. Uh, there's been a lot of sacrifice. But, you know, in raising children, you want to raise them to know God's purpose, God's plan. And let me tell you where it begins. Listen, it begins in a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It comes when you and I repent of our sin and we put our faith and trust in Christ. And we follow, we make it public. And then we begin, to, we begin that difficult pass, the process, that passage, that journey of being conformed into the image of Christ. And parent, you're coming alongside your children, helping them to be conformed into the image of Christ. And when you make a mistake, parent, you're saying, listen, I was wrong. Mom was wrong. Dad was wrong. Forgive me. I don't know what God's plan is. But He does. He knows. Today, I've got a daughter, two daughters, and I have ten grandchildren walking into a church in which they were trying to fire me, vote me out, put me through hell, and walking in for the last service. The wheels of justice... They grind slowly, but they grind. Teach your children you always want to be on the side of what is right, what is godly, what is pure, what is holy. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord. And Lord, we give this time to You that You might take it and use it for Your glory, for Your honor. Lord, I know that this church that I spoke of a moment ago. There are many good people that have come through that church. And even the man that brought great heartache to my life when I went back, when I came home from Africa to preach a funeral, that senior adult came running across the parking lot, crying, saying, Brother Jeff, forgive me, I was wrong. When that senior adult who refused to shake my hand, who we did not agree at all, was repentant enough to publicly say I was wrong, when they buried him, that was brought up at the funeral that he had made it right. God, I thank you for that, and that church still has a future. What I've been told is there's a tattooed, very different pastor that's coming now to start a new church, a beginning there. I pray, dear Lord, that it can still be raised up to be given the glory and honor, and it'll reach all men and women, black, white, Hispanic, whoever they may be. God, may it be a picture of heaven there in the city of Natchez. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here that needs to receive Christ, that they'll come today. Nothing would keep them from that decision. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.